My only hope of escape is to get myself kidnapped and held for ransom. Like my personal hero, the Lindbergh baby. Hello and welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. And on this episode of The Conversation, we are finally going to be discussing Ukulele and the Cracklestone by DM Combo, Dream Prism Press, and Platonic Games. Uh, now, this has been out for a while now. Um, it's been... It's been almost two years. I can't keep track of time given uh, what happened, uh, you know, the the pandemic and just the whole kind of time standing still sort of aspect to it all. But I feel like it's been out for a while. It, it was definitely maybe a little bit after Impossible Layer came out. It The physical version came after the digital. I can't keep track. Um, but we we haven't discussed it yet. Yeah, I don't know how long it's been, but it's been a, a substantial enough time to call it a while. Yeah, uh, I was like, well, I want to give people time to read it before we just dive into spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. And then as these things often do, it just gets away from you. It's then, well, now it's just not very topical and we need to circle back to it at some point. I had the same problem with, you know... Chris Alcock's Sea of Thieves novel, Athena's Fortune. I mean, this is just the way things happen on the conversation. It's my poor management style. Yeah, we we have to delay certain we delay certain things to give like a catch up window for those who are actually interested in those things. The problem is, new stuff does not stop coming in the interim. Yeah, it, it's funny you pointed this out the other day to I think the inner circle. Uh, for more on that, visit dkbind.com forward slash Patreon. But you said, isn't it funny that a Donkey Kong, ostensibly a Donkey Kong podcast, just has too much stuff to talk about that we can't fit it all in? And, and you know, people look at <laughs> the episodes we produce, how long we've been going. And they, they're, they don't understand. They don't understand how the conversation keeps finding things to talk about. And Greta, look, if we didn't have new stuff, new product, stuff in the expanded shared universe to talk about, we would still find things to talk about. That's the way I operate. And we have a very good problem. Yeah. So, you know, finally I had an opening though, because. Platonic, Dream Prism, and Limited Run Games. You know, Limited Run has done lots with Platonic. They did the, uh, the, the physical Switch edition of Ukulele. They, um, they're offering, in addition to the Game Decks Ukulele card game, which is bizarrely canon, and it, it's considered a complete ukulele adventure by Platonic. So we will talk about that later on. But in addition to that, they're also offering a special edition of Ukulele and the Cracklestone called the Grand Tome Edition. It's got a new cover, you know, but, but it looks like the Grand Tome uh, that Ukulele jump into and spend the majority of this graphic novel in. So that's now available at limited run, but it's limited to 1,000 copies max. After that, gone forever. So it's like, well, now this is a good opportunity to bring back Cracklestone into the conversation. Because, you know, we had DM Combo on the conversation back during the Kickstarter campaign. 
and I've wanted to come back to it, do a proper literary analysis on it, and you know, now's the time. So we will be getting into spoilers a little bit uh, on this episode. So if you have not read it and you want to remain unspoiled, I would recommend tuning out. But, but if you've read it, if if it's been a while, but you enjoy it, uh, stay with us. And before you tune out, if you don't want to be spoiled, I just do want to plug, you know, the limited run edition of Ukulele and the Crackle Stone. You can find that at limitedrungames.com. I'm not going to get into my final thoughts at the top of the episode, but... I would say it would be worth it. And I would say that anybody who's interested in what the conversation routinely talks about, if you are a fan of Platonic, but if you're also a fan of the era of games that DK Vine and the conversation frequently go back to, which is the mid to late 90s and 64 era, there is a lot you will like in this graphic novel. So even if you've never really been sold on the characters of Yuka and Lele, uh, one, you will be after this, and two, uh, it's still, it, it's the closest thing I've seen to one of those 3D adventures, but in comic book form. So, uh, so check it out, um, but if you don't care about spoilers, welcome aboard to the episode. And I want to talk really quick about cartoons, Cameron, because, you know, I, I do this for a living. This, this is my career. Um, and being at one of the head tables of this great community, uh, I realize I'm also one of the oldest people in it. Um, you know, ha- having been around since the original Donkey Kong Country and, um, a lot of people are shocked by how old I am when they start talking about things like Shrek. And, you know, <laughs> Heil, what do you mean you haven't seen Shrek? Heil, what do you mean you haven't seen Shrek 2? Heil, what do you mean you haven't seen... Is Shrek the third? Is that the third one? Or is it Shrek the fourth? That's the fourth one. It's uh, Sh- it's Shrek the third, like, because it's about royal succession. Oh, that's almost as confusing as using Roman numerals for your third one when you uh, just regular n- numbers for the second one. That's that's nonsense, Cameron. Yeah, and it, the fourth one is technically Shrek forever after, but nobody calls it that. Or Shrek the final chapter, or just any number of other things that aren't Shrek 4. It still makes more sense than uh, the Fast and the Furious franchise, <laughs> where I can't... I I somehow know all of those in order, despite never seeing any of them. So I guess it works. I, I guess it lodges into your head, but I... I it's like the, the fourth one is Fast and Furious, and then it's Fast 5, and then... Is it... Is, is it... Fast and Furious 6, and then Furious 7, and then Fate of the Furious. It's okay. But yeah, then you've got SpongeBob memes, and, and they're like, hey, hi, I'll SpongeBob meme. And I'm like, yo, I didn't watch SpongeBob. I'm old. We've established your like media co- reference cutoff is somewhere around like late 1999, 2000. Late 1999, um, maybe a little bit before that is when I tuned out of Nickelodeon. So, 
early 1990s Nickelodeon was basically my audiovisual hangout as a kid, right? I, I was the only child, you know, I had plenty of friends, I guess, but uh, when, when I was just home by myself and it was, you know, uh, a weekend afternoon, uh, you know, I, I would have my own TV, you know, where all my Nintendo consoles were hooked up and I would often have, by often, I mean always have Nickelodeon on because because early 90s Nickelodeon in particular it it was something that spoke to me as a kid because I didn't like a lot of kids media as a kid I always felt like it was talking down to me or it it was somehow beneath me <laughs> I, I don't know uh, I, I remember like rolling my eyes whenever they would read Dr. Seuss in grade school because I'm like this is they're just trying to pander to me. I think that's like a universal experience among kids. Like no kid wants to be, wants to feel like they're being talked down to. Yeah, I think you hit a certain point of childhood and you're like, you know, no, I, I'm past this. And also it's about finding your own voice and finding your own likes that aren't what your parents or caretakers are pushing on you. And and the great thing about Nickelodeon was that it was kids programming that seemed to understand kids, at, at least back then. Like I said, I can't speak to it at a certain point, but it was in it was weirdly empowering to be a kid and and watch Nickelodeon. And you know, certain cartoons on Nickelodeon had that attitude and philosophy about them. And, you know, I'm specifically thinking about when they launched Nicktoons, uh, those original four Nicktoons, um, which, you know, um, I I guess Ren and Stimpy is a bit of a problematic topic these days, but, um, I'm specifically thinking Ren and Stimpy, how, how much of a revelation that felt like at the time. Um, and, you know, it definitely didn't talk down to kids. A lot of people in the media, you know, associated with gross out humor and stuff. But really, it was, in my opinion, reframing the childhood experience and kind of putting that in the context of adulthood. Ren and Stimpy were these two weirdos who lived together and would go on crazy adventures. But there, there was no real semblance of adulthood. It was kind of like a child like view of adulthood, right? And I eventually became a much bigger fan because it was more rooted in my sensibilities of a show that came a little bit later called Rocco's Modern Life. And and I know like there's there's connection between Rocco and SpongeBob, but um I, I didn't stick around Nickelodeon for SpongeBob, unfortunately. It's uh it, it's funny you phrase this as like you kind of encountering this world of Nickelodeon and Saying like, oh, this is this is a different kind of kids network. This is, um, like a so- This doesn't feel like like the kids media. Um, whereas I'm like, I'm older than quite a few DK Viners, but still a bit younger than you. And to me, this just this Nickelodeon just was like the quintessential. Like this is the ki- the kids media. The, there was a point where Nickelodeon just became kids media, but. In the early 90s, it was like the Disney Channel, and, and it was, right. you still very much had that Walt Disney influence. And I didn't become a Disney fan right, um, I, until they like bought Marvel and Star Wars. I am honestly kind of shocked, like, 
Like, I, I say that not to diminish, like, the role, Nick, but I, quite the contrary. I mean, Nickelodeon's identity was so strong that it just became, like, the quintessential, this is what kids' television is. Yeah. Um, I had, aside from reruns, um, when, in that, like, period where, um, like, Toon Disney was rerunning a bunch of, uh, like, syndicated um, stuff from their Saturday mornings that had gone off the air, like Darkwing and Gargoyles, I had... F- I like Disney was just so irrelevant to me that it's only very relatively recently with stuff like um like Gravity Falls the the DuckTales revival and the Owl House where I've suddenly found myself shocked that like Disney is kind of the animation channel I'm most into right now which is very very odd because they were just sort of the I don't know. They they kind of came off to me as like the squeaky clean, like this is what the family wants you to watch channel. And therefore Nickelodeon was the more interesting option. Right. It, Nickelodeon felt like pirate radio for kids, you know, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and, you know, kids media evolved as, as time went on and, you know, Cartoon Network grew in prominence and, and stuff. But, but for me, like, it was all about Nickelodeon in, in the early to mid 1990s. But as I got older, um, I, I kind of gravitated away from Nickelodeon. Like the programming started to veer away from my taste as they were evolving. Um, I, I think like the, the majority of the stuff I walked, watched on Nickelodeon near the end was actually just like the live action stuff, like the adventures of Pete and Pete, which I maintain is not only one of the best kids shows ever made, but also just one of the finest television programs ever made. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. But, um, one of the things I, I graduated to was the Simpsons, um, the golden era of the Simpsons. And again, this might be surprising to people because I'd rarely talk about the Simpsons. I don't like people doing funny cartoon impressions of Homer Simpson. Whatever people like to do, Ned Flanders, I don't know. You haven't devolved into half your conversation skills being based on quotes from the Simpsons, like uh, my brand of brain poison. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, seasons three through roughly eight... I love The Simpsons because, and that, that felt like the natural jumping off point for me from that era of Nickelodeon. Uh, cause The Simpsons was a definitely didn't talk down to you. It was programming for adults, but it, you know, it was filled with the same esoteric references. And I felt like I had to keep up with it. And I had to, like, it, it was kind of a, a pop culture education unto itself with all of the jokes it made. And, you know, so so once I discovered The Simpsons, you know, that was kind of my brand of humor and entertainment for a while until it kind of hits that drop off point where I feel like The Simpsons got too full of itself. What's the connection? You might be saying, well, I, I, I'm just kind of laying the groundwork here. Uh, I, I remember when I really started getting fed up with The Simpsons. And I mean, there, there were still quality episodes throughout but um up until you know like season 9 or 10 or whatever you you'd have one offs that were like oh that was pretty good but yeah there's not like really like a universal like point with the simpsons where everybody agrees oh absolutely everything after this episode you can just skip there's generally like like everybody has their own drop off point and it's usually like one particular episode went too far for them <laughs> yes for me it was the 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 jockeys um 
the, the like the magical jockey kingdom. I was, I was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, and I've I've held true to that by and large. Like I I don't I don't I haven't seen an episode of The Simpsons in years. Even the classic stuff is kind of tainted for me. Even me, it's like I can catch a new episode of the show and enjoy it and think that was pretty pretty good. But I don't. Obs- I did reach a drop up point where I decided like I'm not obsessively keeping up with this every Sunday like I used to. Yeah, I remember one uh, specific character that really marked a turning point for me, and that was the introduction of Comic Book Guy. Comic Book Guy felt like this is when the show started punching down a little bit. Uh, and, you know, comic book guy was your, your stereotypical comic book nerd who complained about all, all sorts of minutiae that didn't really matter. And isn't he pathetic? He, he's a mouthpiece for like every like ugly, annoying nerd thing, basically. Like- Which there are ugly, annoying nerds. I, I'm not dismissing that, but it, it, it felt like the Simpsons writers start starting to get a little bit mean spirited at like the criticism of their own show and their own writing and their own like lack of attention to detail. I will say like comic book by book guy wasn't like a late season addition to the show. He was around very early on, but I do think along the lines of what you're saying, they started increasingly using him for more meta commentary. Yeah. As the show went on. Yeah. Like, I mean the jockey episode you're talking about, just kind of has him like winking at the camera a bunch of times like hey didn't we already do this exact plot um like wasn't it funny the first time that sort of thing i i don't know like i i feel like the simpsons as geeky as the writing staff could be they were all still a bunch of harvard graduates with trust funds who who were were kind of always felt like they were above it all a little bit and this was before nerd culture sort of took over hollywood and took over mainstream media and became um the the status quo i will say that like from my perspective at watching the simpsons like i i got into the simpsons like it was kind of a weird like bookend for me like i was into them as a kid who was way too young to be watching before we got cable tv then I dovetailed out of it and got really way back into the show um, around the time people say it started to go downhill. But by that point, it, I had reruns. But um, from my perspective, I remember distinctly, like, I think Comic Book Guy is a very funny character. I think The Simpsons in general has a lot of, like, very funny, like, dork characters. Um, like um, Comic Book Guy, Martin, Database. Um, but... I think seeing um, the, in hindsight, like very nerdy writers of The Simpsons making those jokes about like people who were geeky and nerdy kind of made me as a kid, like so self-conscious, like, oh, I don't want to be like this person. Exactly. Therefore, yes. I'm going to disguise like my interest in any of these things. You you hit upon what I was getting to, Cameron, where Nickelodeon empowered me. Eventually, The Simpsons sort of ruined me because I did not want to be the comic book guy. And I obviously have always had a deep vested interest in things like shared universes. Um, you know, it blew my mind when I learned that Batman and Superman were in the same world. Like, what? 
Um, and, and even things, non-consequential things relatively, like the ABC TGIF lineup on Friday nights, like between Family Matters and Full House, that all shared this same world, uh, where, you know, Urkel would show up from one show to the other, uh, it was just the coolest thing in the world to me. And I would like work out my head, like, okay, if I was this huge Urkel fan, um, how, how would I consolidate, consolidate that? If I ran like this Urkel fanzine, you know, because this was before everybody was online. If I ran an Urkel <laughs> fanzine, what would I cover in the Urkel fanzine? I was already thinking in these terms <laughs> long before DK Vine, right? Uh, but I could never find that property that was uniquely mine that, that I could geek out over. Like I so badly wanted to geek out over until Donkey Kong Country came along and Donkey Kong Country changed everything for me because everything about Donkey Kong Country seemed to be uniquely tailored for my taste. And so, so as soon as I hopped on the Donkey Kong Country train, like all my other interests sort of uh, diminished a bit, but I always hid uh, outside of DK Vine. I always sort of hid my uh, obsession with it because I didn't want to be the comic book guy. And I'm bringing all this up because Ukulele and the Cracklestone is this weird amalgamation of so much of my life in the 90s. It feels like it harkens back to Nickelodeon cartoons of the era, like Rocco's Modern Life. It is this unabashed celebration, uh, this, this geeky celebration that uh, of a a shared universe but you know specifically ukulele itself that you know doesn't get anything wrong all of that like complaining comic book guy minutia where i was like you know oh there is a continuity error on this page and and oh that panel conflicts with what happens in world four of ukulele there's none of that it it's it it is the most carefully crafted love letter I've potentially ever seen for a video game, and it's not afraid to be geeky. It almost invites you to be geeky with it, and it felt like such this such a, a huge validation of who I was in the 90s and who I tried to suppress being for so long up until a few years ago. And I think it's great. <laughs> it's really amazing to me that this story, um, it like Cracklestone at once does things that you, that I wouldn't expect a ukulele game to ever actually do but not in a way that it ever feels apart from them. It just feels like this is it taking advantage of the, of the medium in a comic book in a way that a game can't do. Yes, but it, it, it feels like very much like you can Lele are having the type of adventure they would have in a game, but in presentation. Oh, in 100%. Uh, um, like, I would say you could like reverse adapt this into a game and it would still hit every right note. Yeah, but they like th there's this one part in the book where they acknowledge that they're in a book, which is the kind of fourth wall breaking meta-ness that, you know, platonic and, and rare 
uh, have always engaged in with these types of games. Uh, You know, Donkey Kong, Banjo and Kazooie, Conker, they all know they're in a video game. Uh, Ukulele know they're in a video game. And in this case, they know they're in a book, but they're still having the same type of adventure they would have. It's not like things are fundamentally too different, but it definitely plus there's the the odd recursion that they literally go into books in, <laughs> right right in both of these should they have gone into a grand video game in this one i, I guess <laughs> something to consider but uh yeah it, it's um I, I figured i would like it right and, and you know talking with uh dm combo you know painted a good picture uh, of what was in store and you know, you know me. I especially these days, I give everything a chance. I I I don't like walk into anything with a negative mindset. But I don't think I was prepared for how much it impressed me and how much it made me feel good. It it, it was like a warm warm hug for my soul. So much of this, and, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. So I think we're just going to have to hit them point by point and, and, and try to suss it out because it's, it's honestly one of those things where I don't even know if I can adequately put it into words. You know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, uh, then I am totally screwed trying to sum up this graphic novel. Um, you, you might just have to experience it for yourself, but let's start with the art style itself um because that is the most immediately striking thing about this that that is going to be the thing you first notice that first pulls you in and you know it's something that i think even people who haven't read it are familiar with if they were exposed to our content about it or if they're plugged into platonic on social media or you know they're they more witness the kickstarter campaign but the art style is something that I don't really know how to describe. I, I've come up with a term for it that might be totally inaccurate, but it, it I think, hits upon one of the reasons I like it. Uh, I, I call it Comic Art Novu. Um, and our Art Novu is, was a, uh, a style of art that was very prevalent from, like, the late... 1800s, I want to say 1890 up through World War One, um, and then kind of Art Deco took over. But it, it's um, and why am I explaining art to you, Cameron? You're you're, you're, <laughs> the, you're, the, you're the artist here, but it, you know, Art Nouveau is is kind of like very um, smooth. It's not very angular. It's more of a celebration of nature and the natural world and the natural forms. Um, above all else and as when i was first exposed to it and there's there's an art museum uh here in richmond virginia and they have a whole art novu wing and i swear like it was just like i've never been really like drawn into the art world but i i like had reactions to this art it just like it it, it dialed into the same part of my brain that appreciates things like Donkey Kong Country. It is a celebration of nature, but in art. Um, and it's it's something that I really got from a lot of DM Combo's work here. But it's done in a cartoony comic book style way that that somehow effortlessly blends the two. And I'm so I might be totally off base because it, it just I, I'm like 
art, art criticism, uh, art theory is not my thing, but I, I, I get the same warm fuzzies and the same emotional reaction from this as, as I do Art Novo. So uh, tell me how wrong I am, Cameron. I really think I, I get what you, what you're going for here. Um, even if Art Nouveau, Nouveau wouldn't necessarily be the first thing I think of, I definitely see where you would, um, hit on that because I think a lot of what I love about this artwork, um, is probably hitting on similar notes. Um, like a lot of, um, Art Nouveau pieces are very concerned with like the, the sort of like framing device or like, like architectural, um, like space that they're, that they exist in. And I mean, the, the main thing I want to compliment or the, well, the thing, one thing I want to compliment about this art, cause I can't, I honestly can't take one thing. This is just a gorgeous book. Um, oh, yeah. the panel layouts, um, such that, that they are, there is a lot of, there, there are no true, um, like rectangular panels in this book. Um, everything is very unnatural looking. Um, there's the panels generally like aren't, um, straight lines. A lot of them are very like playful, bendy shapes, um, yeah. that kind of contort around what the characters are doing in the space they're in. Objects bleed out of the panels all the time. Um, a recurring device that it, does that I really really like is that the um, the shape of a panel will contort around like the negative space to be like formed by an object in the foreground like yes. say a a peek into a clearing through some trees the shape of the panel will have like the shape of leaves and trees mm-hmm. as if it's like blending the a like shadowed foreground into the panel border and every every page is kind of like this fully considered tableau and it just mm, like um, you mentioned not knowing like if somebody didn't know quite what to think of a ukulele comic book sight unseen, any one page of this book makes a spectacular first impression. Yeah, the uh, like um the the panels remind me a lot of the artwork of Alphonse Muha, um a famous Art Nouveau uh, painter um from from the the height of that movement. Just just. Like you said, there's there's no rigid angles in this, and, and it's like the panels are being formed by the characters, by the world, by the items in it, um, and the striking use of purples and 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 just it's 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 funny that you brought up Nickelodeon, um, like in this episode. I had no, I, I didn't really know going in that's where you were going with this, but. <laughs> I feel like that comparison is strikingly apt because the way I would describe like the look of this um, comic in general is it it oozes color. Yeah. Like oozes, I think, is the word to go with. Um, Just I I cannot believe the like vibrancy and depth of color in this book. Everything is extremely striking to look at. And there is a lot of. A lot of heavy purples, a lot of very neon greens and cyans. Uh, it also reminds me of another favorite era of mine in uh, the, the the artistic world, and that is late '60s psychedelia. Uh, like it reminds me of a like an album cover from 1967, <laughs> um, and in all the best ways. And it's just it's 
it, it's hyper surreal, but it plays with the natural world and, and it subverts uh, your, your expectations, which makes sense again, because that period of music and, and that movement uh, harkened back to uh, the late 1800s and, and, and that uh, period of art itself. So it, it kind of makes sense that I'm seeing all these links uh, back to that, but yeah, it, it's, um, there, 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 there's, there's so much never- consideration paid to yes. everything too. Like, um, like the, the backgrounds around the panel borders in this book are never uniformly one color. They are always ever shifting depending on the mood of the scene. Like occasionally they'll be like, like they'll be pure white. If like the scene is outdoors in the bright blue clouds or, um, they might be like orange inside ivory towers or purple in like a landscape filled with, um, like purple shrubbery. It's, Really, really well considered. Yeah, I uh, I was never bored or uninterested. Just even looking at the pages themselves, like not even like ignoring the content uh, within, like just every single page was kind of a visual feast. And, and it definitely like kept you kept me turning from page to page. Um even even in my reread, I kept like finding things like ooh 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 that's pretty ooh, and, and before I know it, you know, I'm at the end of the book. But you know, there's a lot of ways you can do a graphic novel, and I'm thinking like com- compare this to something like, and I realize it's considered a seminal work, but Watchmen, which just has this grid layout of panels, it's very um, uniform and um, just, and I don't know. Um, Workmanlike, um, and, and which that, is appropriate for Watchmen because right. it's a teardown of the way superhero comics work. Yeah, yeah. But th- this, though, it, it's just like it, it really does feel like you're kind of pulled into the world, and and you forget that you're reading a graphic novel because the the panels and the colors just kind of immerse you. Uh, and, and you are actually just completely lost in the work itself, right? And, and so, like, and I, I, and I it, can tell this is a sensibility that DM Combo like is bringing to ukulele because I see this in his other work. Um, yeah, like his, his original graphic novel Dreamside similarly has a very like the like extreme bleed of colors and non traditional panels. And it it just is such a good match for ukulele and one I would have never considered until seeing it laid out before me. Well, that's the thing. Like, ukulele has a very um, specific art direction. Ukulele in Impossible Layer has a uh, similar art direction. And I would never think this is a perfect candidate for this kind of surreal, almost dreamscape um world but seeing it in action i'm like yeah absolutely a- and right down to the the way combo uh, portrayed the character specifically yuka and Layli, i absolutely adore 
the way they both look in this, specifically Laylee. Um, I, th- this might be my favorite interpretation of Laylee. I, I just absolutely love the little tweaks he made to her design, um, which is never like done in a way that feels inauthentic to the character or to what Platonic intended, but it, it straddles a, a very nice line where I feel, I feel the artist's personal stamp on these characters in every single panel I see them drawn, but I never feel like they are on. They're never mistakable as anything other than this is Platonic Suka and Laylee. This is who these characters are. Nothing feels off about the way they're portrayed in this book, even when they are doing these extremely um, <laughs> um, incredible wild takes. Yeah, and I like I, I love that you know I I back the Kickstarter campaign a level where I got some of the various goodies, um, including like a, a pin uh, of of Yuka and Lele in this art style, which I'm looking at right now. Just be, and I'm like. I just love, like, the pronounced eyelashes on Lele, like, a- adding this, like, level yeah. of personality that um, maybe has never been visually conveyed before. Um, yeah, uh, I I am just completely enamored with the way they look. Um, and I would be completely fine if Platonic in a future game maybe incorporated a little bit of the stylistic touches here. I gotta say, like, you mentioned Yuka and Laylee specifically. Some of the other characters, like, I, I still think, like, fundamentally, when I I love the way Yuka and Laylee are drawn in this book, but, like, when I close my eyes, you know, if you tell me, oh, what, what do Yuka and Laylee look like, I will... I'm going to picture something like, you know, the box for Impossible Layer, or mm-hmm. something just because, like, from, like, familiarity and exposure... Sure. But for some of the other characters in this book, like um like the ones that pre- in particularly stand out to me, um Dr. Quack and Dr. Puzz, the way DM Combo has drawn them in this comic, that that is just that those are the default um versions of those characters in my brain. You tell you ask me to think of what does Dr. Quack look like? I'm going to think of a panel of him like cackling madly in this book. It also helps that this is probably the most time we've spent with that character, um, outside of a few cutscenes in the, you know, original ukulele. I feel like the character gets f- fleshed out more here in Cracklestone than anywhere else. And, and Dr. Puzz to an extent too. Dr. Puzz too. I mean, that's true of everybody in this book because we never really get the chance to sit with any of these characters doing the sorts of things they do in this story. Um, like, um, Dr. Puzz gets to be more of an active participant yeah. in a story that doesn't also have to be a game. Right, right. Um, which, which we'll, uh, we'll get into. Why don't we talk about the story? Uh, and then, and then we'll talk about some of the characterizations. I'm trying to think the best way to sum up this story. I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just give like, a few sentences to set it up. So I, it starts in media res with, with Yuka and Laylee in, I th- it's tribal stack tropics, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Like they, they never name drop it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be tribal stack tropics, but they're, they're looking for this quill stash, a, a quill hoard that they didn't get in the first game because they've spent all of their quills 
um, on was it chocolate coated millworms or something? Which, which brings to mind it, something it, I, I will it's talk a, it's about. It's a recur. It's a recurring theme in this book that Yuka and Laylee are extremely frivolous with their money. Yes. Um. Uh. But they. Uh. So so they get the quill hoard. Um. They they get like a whole sack of quills. They they leave the grand tome. They're coming back to. Uh, the batship crazy and then trouser shows up trouser the snake and he entices them with knowledge of a grand tome they didn't know about in the previously unmentioned and unseen basement of ivory towers and within the grand tome there is an invincibility granting item macguffin called the cracklestone uh, th- th- this this intrigues Yuka. Lele doesn't seem to care so much. She just wants to use the quills on on a a foot bath. Um, but Capital B uh, spies this and en- enlists Doctor Quack to obtain the Crackle Stone. So um, Doctor Quack, by the way, is really the villain of the story. Capital B only has kind of a minor role, uh, makes makes minor appearances throughout, but Dr. Quack is, is kind of the primary antagonist of it, yeah. which kind of makes it work as a, as a side story. Yeah, and it also helps flesh out the dynamic between the two a lot more than we get to see in the game itself. Yeah. Because just by nature of a video game, you're not going to spend a lot of time checking in with capital B and Dr. Quack, but you really get to see just... Uh, Another thing to like touch on that I really love in this book is it just kind of hammers home, I think, even more than the game, just how much of an ugly, horrible boss that uh, Capital B is to his subordinates. Mm. There's yeah. a lot of attention paid to him um, screaming at Dr. Quack, um, complaining, um, just kind of doing these like selfish little little speeches to himself. And, you know, the, the antagonism between them was, was definitely, uh, illustrated in, in the original ukulele, uh, specifically, you know, we find out like Dr. Quack is actively plotting against capital B. Um, but, but we, we get glimpses of their internal monologue, internal dialogue here. Um, all the characters, I mean, Yuka and Lele and Dr. Quack specifically, but, um, it, it is, um, it, it is nice to see that fleshed out. Um, specifically, like, it's, it's not clear when this story takes place. I think it could fit quite nicely between Ukulele and Ukulele in the Impossible Lair. Um, ultimately, it, it might not matter, but I know if you're like me, you will care about that kind of stuff. It's something I think about, but I the story is so fun that it like helps put the question out of my mind, I yeah. guess. I mean, it, it works. You, you, you could like you, fit it you in. Can, you can make it work if you try hard enough. It's not like it's a, it, it's not a like, it, this isn't a banjo pilot situation where you have to twist, twist your brain into pretzels to make this work. Yeah. If, if you can accept that capital B was working to overtake, um, the royal stingdom, uh, concurrently with the events of this book then yeah it absolutely works as a mid cool and in fact in a lot of ways it did feel kind of like a 
sort of Donkey Kong Land like story that might not be referenced in the the games themselves, like it in the uh, the the big sequels, but uh, like the fans will know what happened, and and that's the kind of thing that I love and miss, you know, in in this era where those kind of um, smaller budget handheld games don't really exist. Um, ukulele and the Cracklestone, Cracklestone sort of fits that role for the ukulele franchise, which, uh, is quite all right by me. Um, but, but this grand tome that they have to access in the basement of Hyvary Towers that, um, that contains the Cracklestone, it doesn't have a name. It, it, it's not named in the actual book. I, I've been calling it Mount Zap Crackle, um, based on its most prominent um, natural feature, um, for lack of a proper term. But it's actually, the, the Grand Tome itself, it's several game worlds kind of stitched into one, which I think is just a narrative device that allows for kind of this linear video game-esque adventure. Um, but it's across this sort of Lord of the Rings-esque fictional map Um so, so you can have this map. One you can even get if you <laughs> back to the Kickstarter. Yeah, I'm holding the map right now too. Uh, you got this little cloth map, this little like parchment, which I love. Reminds me a little bit of a, a baby bib. It, it, it's, it's very colorful and very helpful. Like I was comparing it with the map that Dr. Puzz shows in the graphic novel and everything lines up. You even have negative space for the uncharted territory, but, um, uh, yeah, it's great because this is the, or I think the map that you got at this, the Kickstarter tier was the only full color representation of the whole Grand Tome. Everything else was just the kind of blueprint, um, style that Dr. Puzz shows of the map. But, um, yeah, th- this allows for like a linear adventure without like jumping from Grand Tome to Grand Tome. So you kind of get all these environments that you would get in a ukulele game. But without, um, without the headache of saying, now they go to this grand tome and now they go to that grand tome. It all takes place within the same grand tome. I call it all Mount Zapcrackle, but it might have, um, an unspoken proper name. But the areas of it include, and I'm just going to read them all out because they all utilize the needed alliteration that Rare and Platonic have always employed. You've got Plum Petal Meadow, Fungi Side Forest, haha, yeah, that, that's a, <laughs> a bit of a elaboration on a famed Donkey Kong 64 and dropped Banjo-Kazooie world. And DM Combo is a self-confessed fan of DK64, so yeah. I'm inclined to take that as deliberate. <laughs> Bubble Bomb Bog, Bouncy Bushland, which I, I don't know if I made the connection while reading the graphic novel, but looking at the map, I realize Bouncy Bushland is essentially the Mushroom Kingdom, or it's a it's a pastiche of the Mushroom Kingdom with the kind of nonsensical uh, circular hills that you often see. Um, you've got Honey Tumble Hives. We'll be coming back to that one. Dream Shine Sea, which seems like. Uh, something Taylor made for DM Combo sensibilities. Bulky Bone Barrens, Deep Crack Chasm, Bramble Bust Barrow. Um, brambles are indeed in Ukulele and the Crackle Stone. 
and Mount Zapcrackle itself. And there is also, very intriguingly, an uncharted territory at the right of the map that is never explained. It's just, it's just on the map, it's uncharted territory. It's literally uncharted. Which I love being rare and platonic fans you know uh the allure of the unknown of what could be there uh, i love that the combo utilized that even in a graphic novel like- there's i love <laughs> i love not only that but even even all the locations we do know about and do see we don't actually visit in this story and it's mm. like that that's great it, it's a world that is larger than like feels larger than the story needs it to be. That's always been the the style of the team behind ukulele. The, 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 you there's always this overindulgence. There's this need to create more of the world than is necessary, more of that universe than is necessary, and you know it, it actually runs contrary to a lot of the ways Nintendo does things, which is kind of economic, um, like, gameplay first philosophy. And I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, but I definitely prefer one. And I prefer the one that stokes the fires of the imagination and makes you wonder, like, not only buy into the world more, but just makes you constantly wonder about it and think about it. Um, when something sits with you after you're done with it and you keep going back to that world in your mind, in my opinion, that's when you know the creator did something right. But if it's just perfunctory, you're in, you're out, you don't really think about it again, then, then I think it doesn't have the staying power than it, sh- that it should. So I love that, that combo, um, just picked up on the same sensibilities that I think a lot of our audience has. I, clearly a fan of these games and it shows right down to the damn uncharted territory that i won't shut up about because i want to know what it is (laughs) i want i want to know what it is and and i want some sort of follow-up and i don't know how like maybe you could do some sort of stop and swap with a graphic novel i don't know how (laughs) And meanwhile, uh, over the course of the adventure, they do run into several ukulele series characters along the way. Uh, now these, these characters somehow access the Grand Tome, uh, either after Yuka and Lele got there or maybe Trouser also sold them keys. <laughs> it's, it's not quite clear, but, uh, I, I'm actually leaning towards the latter because it, it seems like this is something that, well, when we get into the end game of the novel, uh, the, the graphic novel, I think Trouser, uh, I said Dr. Quack is the antagonist, but in many ways, Trouser is, is the nefarious mastermind behind it all. But, uh, <laughs> several of the characters they run into include Rextro, Rextrosaurus 64us, Nimbo and Nimble, Dr. Puzz and we'll call him Royston, uh, Cartos, and even a planker sign, and, and I'm not sure. I I know like the the planker signs are like a, a species at this point, but I I don't know if they're uniformly called plankers or planker is just one. And it's like a, a Professor Chops and the Oink situation. Um, I'm, I'm not sure or if it's just like all toads where they're they're just all toads now. They're all plankers. Yeah, it's it's really um impressive. Like I know that. The, only the first ukulele game had been out at this point, and this is such a, like, not having 
like the full scope of the ukulele series apparent at the time there's like such a like there's a relatively small pool of characters to draw from yeah and they're utilized in this so well um i think like as you mentioned like having this one grand tome that's divided up into these very distinct areas also really facilitates that like you can lately kind of run into a a familiar slash new face every single area they come across, and it lends credence to why those characters would be there in those spaces, and it feels really well realized. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of the the cheekiness that often comes with characters showing up in these worlds in the game. Like, what are you doing here? Well, and they give this very convoluted reason. Um, and there, <laughs> there's a little bit of that too. But it's impressive that. DM Combo started writing this before the original ukulele was even out, right? He he was going off right. of just the like stuff I, Platonic was releasing, and if uh, I remember correctly, like, and I mean this holds true in the book. It's nothing beyond the first world, really. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, like it's the only the only like world native characters I believe return are Nimbo and Nimble. The rest are the principal cast that we knew about f- from very early on. Yeah, the the only thing that is from later in the game is Moody Maze Marsh makes a very brief cameo uh, near the end. But besides that, yeah, everything is from the um, the overworld, the the initial um batch of crazy training area Shipwreck Creek and right. then uh, tribal stack tropics and so. even though i can point that out in retrospect that is never a thought that occurred to me while reading it no absolutely it not never feels limited by that conceit no, not only does it never feel limited but it also feels like such a great companion piece with impossible lair um for a couple reasons one is the uh the, the big twist ending um so we, we find out you can lay spoilers, all right. You can lay do get the crackle stone um, through through a couple convoluted means because Doctor Quack gets it, then Rextro gets it, and then they win it from Rextro <laughs> at his arcade. Uh, but come to find out, the crackle stone is a scam. The crackle stone it requires lithium batteries or something that can only be supplied by Trouser. Uh, for an, an exorbitant amount of quills. So, so we know Trouser sold a key to this basement of Hyrie Towers to Yuka, uh, and well, to Dr. Quack before him and then Yuka and maybe uh, Dr. Puzz and Rextro and, and these other characters too. But my question is, you know, this, this world centered around the Crackle Stone. Right. Like they're, they're right. E- in the world, there's even it's even like this huge tourist attraction with these characters coming to see the crackle stone and this big, like kitschy kind of um, s- sort of like tourist trap kind of fashion. Um, so if the crackle stone is a trouser scam, but this whole world is centered around the notion of the crackle stone, did trouser actually write this grand home? <laughs> I I like how you're kind of like left to draw your own conclusions as to <laughs> how deep the rabbit hole of yeah. trouser zany scheme goes. Like the the main thing I think about is we never actually find out if the crackle stone works because obviously <laughs> yeah. obviously you can lately are never going to 
go on a second adventure to get those batteries in this book. No, and, and the so, fact and is, it's I very think- possible, like, you know, they get, like, what if they did that, got the batteries, put them in, like, does the thing actually work? Does it just, like, light up like a cheap watch? Does it, does, like, a, does, like, a slot pop out and say, oh, you also need to buy this, this expansion pack from Trouser? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the expansion pack would have been a good joke if it was an expansion pack instead of batteries. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we don't know, uh, and we're left to infer, but I said it, it worked kind of as a complement to Impossible Lair, and, and getting into Impossible Lair, mega spoilers here, there, there is this revelation um, about uh, Impossible Lair and another character authoring a grand tome, and, and it makes me what, like, it, it, it's, it's funny if the implication is that Trouser wrote... Mountain Zaprackle just as a Zap Zapcrackle just as a way to con people out of quills because then we've got you know other characters authoring grand tomes now and it's just just going to be a thing. It's also fun that like the the Cracklestone in itself is a very video gamey item in such a way that I can buy that these characters wouldn't immediately assume it's just some kind of snake oil that Trouser is selling. Right. And and they do, you know, question Trouser quite a bit. He's, he's a shifty con man. Um, but they, they ultimately, Yuka, y- y- like there's this little like nagging voice in Yuka's head that, that really makes him want to pursue it. Yeah, I, I think the, the ultimate deciding factor is whether or not they think it's real. On the off chance it is, they don't want Dr. Quack to have it. Yeah, yeah. Yuka in particular, I say D- uh, Dr. Quack is sort of the villain of this if we ignore that Trouser is kind of the, the secret omni-villain of this. But um, <laughs> out of the two, I would say Yuka is the actual protagonist of this. Not to say that Laylee doesn't get a lot of great FaceTime, and this is my favorite portrayal of Laylee ever uh, thus far, but I think Yuka is the beating heart of this graphic novel. I feel like I have so much more complete an understanding of who Yuka and Laylee are as characters because of this story. The, the, the characterization is fantastic, and, you know, I, I said a lot uh, when Impossible Lair came out, about how I felt it finally moved Yukonlele beyond being mere Banjo and Kazooie XPs. You know, because, you know, the, the original Yukonlele, I love it. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways, it actually improves upon Banjo Kazooie, uh, play control and just in the thought that goes into how the world is crafted. You know, cause, cause I, as I said, like Banjo Kazooie, I love all the iconography of it, but let's be honest, puzzle pieces, music notes, none of it really gels together. And I like how they, they centered everything around these, these books grand tomes and then you've got pages and then you've got quills and then you've got ghost writers like they made everything uniformly connected versus like oh, we have these cute little whatever's named jinjos and um i went lovitz there you can tell that a lot of banjo kazooie was like formed naturally over time based on like constant iteration and revision and ukulele's world building is i think very intentionally like we know the end point we want to reach let's make everything thematically consistent getting there to that point yeah which is great but it also doesn't 
obscure the fact that ukulele is a very conscious uh, Banjo-Kazooie spiritual sequel, uh, right down to the name. But, you know, as as ghostwriters are just far more clever than Jinjos, they are still reskin Jinjos, especially in the gameplay mechanics. So, um, Impossible Layer did a lot, I think, for the ukulele cast to move beyond that and kind of start to carve out identities of their own just putting them in a different genre did wonders because all of a sudden you weren't just thinking of ukulele in the context of they are a lizard banjo and a bat kazooie uh but um this is the first time we really get into their heads and we really see sort of more of a slice of life for both yuka and Lele. and this is where i really I think understood these characters. Impossible Layer did a lot of legwork as far as, you know, getting them to be beyond mere reskins of characters I already know and love. This makes them completely different individuals. And I, I like, I, I'm kind of staggered because it is rare for me to read an expanded universe piece or, or, or to consume an expanded universe piece and be like, Wow, you know, that, that is the definitive portrayal of these characters. Like the Donkey Kong Country cartoon. I want, I wouldn't have sat back and said, yep, that's my Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. But what, what DM Combo has done is he has given a voice to these characters and defined them in a way that makes complete sense to me. And, and, and this is different than the Donkey Kong Country cartoon because this was made with Platonic's full blessing and oversight. So it's a little bit different scenario. You know, th- this is canon, uh, where I don't think anybody in Nintendo or Rare was really treating the Donkey Kong Country cartoon as canon or the Super Mario Brothers Super Show or the Legend of Zelda cartoon or any of the tie-in media of the time. Um, like the, the Sonic the Hedgehog comic books, did Sega ever treat those as canon? Uh, no, not yeah, really. Yeah. Um, you, I think, um, like the, the IDW books now that the Sonic comics have switched publishers, like are in a bit of like, like could be canon if you squint kind of territory, yeah. but everything previously, absolutely not. We're, we're in this new era of, the DKU where a lot of these sort of um, expanded DKU properties, the the big expanded DKU properties of the last five years, ukulele and sea of thieves, they're getting all the, these actual Canon tie-ins that potentially feed back into the core games. Um, And they're, they're both being done with a lot of care and a lot of oversight. Um, but what strikes me is how well this does complement Impossible Layer and what we see of those characters there. But even things like the the it is so hard for me to believe like Impossible Layer was a twinkle in the eye when this was being conceived of because it just flows so well into it. Yeah, and also things like the um, letters to Lely uh, thing on the Platonic site, which is written by Dahlia. Where, where, like, Lele's characterization there is, is spot on with her characterization here. It all feels like it's being done by, it doesn't even feel like it's being done by the same author. It just feels like they are real people now. Uh, and I don't, like, I know Andy Robinson, you know, um, spot checked some of the continuity here, but 
like honestly, I don't know how DM Combo did it successfully pulled off their voices in, in the fact that they didn't really have voices before this. So, uh, I, I'm kind of in awe as both, uh, a writer myself and also a student and scholar of this shared universe and shared universes in general. Um, this, this, this is brilliant. Um, th- this is the kind of thing I would worry about the most is, are they going to screw up the characterization? Like, even, even more so beyond continuity, if the characters themselves don't feel right, I check out and I, and I'm just mentally against the product. Which is why Donk on Country, the cartoon never felt right to me. I realize it has its fans and I respect that. Um, but it, I just could never get into it because it wasn't Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong as I understood them, right? And this is something, like, you can, like, get wrong even just within the same medium. Like, like there are things I like about Star Fox Command, as an example, but I also think it makes a lot of characterization choices <laughs> that rub me the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cursed (laughs) yeah yeah um so i just broad strokes uh because because i really feel like you have to read this to get what we're talking about and i like just just don't let cameron and i explain to you why this works you really need to check it out yourself but you can lay like i love this this sets them apart from banjo kazooie immediately how much more animalistic they are than Banjo and Kazooie. Um, cause Banjo and Kazooie. Yeah. Yeah. Banjo likes honey, but, and, and Kazooie can fly. If, but they are if basically. The collectibles, if the collectibles in Banjo Kazooie weren't honeycombs, Banjo could be literally any other type of animal or, or human or, or is it like, like one of the things I love about Banjo and Kazooie and the Kongs is they're essentially humans just portrayed as animals. Uh, there's something relatable about that, but I do love when studios and creators indulge just a little bit in, well, they are, they are apes and monkeys. Like when Dixie is grooming Donkey Kong's back in Tropical Freeze, I'm like, ha, I like that because there's just that little reminder that they're not quite human. Uh, they're, they're, they're more human than most gorillas and monkeys, but Dixie's still going to pick insects off Donkey Kong's back and eat them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love how Yuka and Laylee are just straight up, um, a lizard and a bat. They eat insects. Uh, they, they have gross appetites. They, I mean, I, it doesn't shy away from that, but they're never not relatable because of it. It's just, um, it, it definitely plays with like the, the chocolate millworms or, uh, Yuka eating or trying to eat this really disgusting fly, uh, in Bubble Bomb Bog. Um, like, and then he's like spitting out, he's spitting out fly parts as the, the mother worm, whatever is, is enraged, um, over Yuka eating her babies. It's very Grogu from Mandalorian. <laughs> I, something I love about the way Yuka and Layla are characterized in this book is like it was, it was very easy to see them both as like Banjo and Kazooie archetypes when the game was when the first game came out and leading up to it 
because they have a very similar dynamic with each other to Banjo and Kazooie. This this book still kind of keeps that they have a very similar dynamic, but the characters themselves um, have a very different way of getting to are, are very different in personality and kind of have a different way reason that they're bouncing off each other the way they do. Yeah. Um, like I'd say like Banjo works as a straight man to Kazooie in, in the Banjo games because he's a, he comes off as like a very like naive, polite country bumpkin, like very aw shucks. How, how can I, what can I do for you? Mr. Whatever. Um, yeah. Kind of character. Yuka slots into that role as well, but he's also like, um, like for as many comments about about how Banjo is like a dim-witted bear, I think he's really just kind of naive. Yeah, Yuka is like maybe self-destructive. I mean, you self-destructively um, irrational, quick to act, nervous, um, self-doubting. The self-doubt in particular really drew me in. Um, self-doubt and indecision plague Yuka throughout this. And it, it was like, it was like, oh my God, I, I am seeing myself in Yuka. Um, there, there's a point in the story where he and Laylee get separated. And th- th- this is the point where Yuka just completely, he like self flatulates himself. He, he is just so hard on himself and, and he's just like, I, I, I have completely screwed up. Um, uh, like I am, I am, I am a nitwit. Uh, I, and he, like, that's, that's me. That's my internal monologue at yeah. all times. Um, do even, cause I, so even when we were setting up this podcast, presumably because of all the storms, um, hurricane here on the East Coast, uh, we, we can't live stream for our patrons. And I, I was just like yelling at myself throughout, like, I, I'm completely inept. I, I can't get anything right. I'm screw up. I'm a fraud. Um, I don't deserve any patrons. And, um, yeah, I, I'm Yuka. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt a little bit of that, like, very early on in the book where this, there's the shift of, where they say, like, no, the responsible thing to do is brush off Trouser. It's not worth taking the risk. And then Yuka sees um, Dr. Quack running off with a key and, and just has this moment of panic. Oh, God, this is the worst mistake I've ever made and will ever make. I will throw all my money at this problem to make it go away <laughs> yeah. and fi- fix my mistake. Like, yeah. I, I have really screwed the pooch on this one. I, you know, I, I said on Twitter a while ago that Diddy was the ultimate millennial character. Um, I might have to amend that statement by saying Yuka is in many ways, uh, an archetypal millennial. Um, just, just so much about him, um, and, and so much about how he behaves and interacts with problems. Um, I, I, it's just a reflection of myself and so many of my friends. Um, I, I think we all see ourselves kind of in, in that kind of, um, bubble. And, but it also kind of illustrates why he and Laylee are a good pair because they, they complement each other in ways, you know, that they can't really fulfill just by themselves. 
and Laylee is impish. She she is childlike and lacking in impulse control. Um, although you know, I, I guess Yuka is is impulsive, impulse impulsive at times in this. Um, this kind of more measured in what in what where they're more restrained in certain areas than others, but they complete each other and they both also feed each other's worst impulses. You know, Laylee, one of the things I loved about this was the fact that she frequently bites Yuka <laughs> in sort of this playful way. Like, early on, she's just biting his head. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? If a bat and a lizard were friends, I'm sure this is what a bat would do. Yeah, I- you, you get the impression from, like... Again, I I can't say enough good things about the expressions in this book, but from that series of panel, you get the impression like Yuka doesn't like this, but he's kind of used to Laylee acting like this. Yeah, um, she she's hyperactive and a lot of in a lot of ways, a little bit more uh, innocent and naive than Kazooie, who I would say is cynical and sardonic and um you know, if if you had a problem with Yuka and Laylee in that first game, you just played that first game, and you're like, well, Laylee is just Kazooie. She's just a purple Kazooie. Um, read this. Because this, I think, paints the definitive portrayal of Laylee, not not just um, from DM Combo's perspective, but Platonic's perspective. This is who the character is, and you see that in, I think, Laylee's portrayals um going forward i mean everything we've seen from Laylee kind of syncs up with this portrayal um and and Laylee's also a little bit gross like she just lets out this massive fart at one point both of them are kind of gross in this book um speaking of nickelodeon um there's a lot of like like regurgitating food and farting and in it's all made funnier because it's like juxtaposed by the artwork showing it being so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) yes the the most gorgeous uh fart clouds you've ever seen ever 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 in any graphic novel i'm thinking like earlier i was like running through like how best to describe the the artwork to the audience and like how much i appreciate it and i just hit my eyes on this panel where the um like large corplet they've defeated um farts and like the grass um skirt they've made for themselves the leaves on it part to let the glass gas cloud escape <laughs> yeah 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 i mean the, the the big fart cloud uh was 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 like oh you know cuz it it was it was like triggering you know the muscle memory in my brain and I, I couldn't remember like why some of this felt so comforting and familiar. And then I remembered it like th- this feels like early nineties Nickelodeon. And then I, I like in, in the big like comical signs it uh, near the beginning when they're in the temple and they've got, you know, like big signs that say push this button. It, it did remind me a lot of the, um, the comic art direction of Rocco's modern life and I was like okay um yeah I I get a lot of Rocco energy from Yuka in this book oh yeah 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 and you know I I love the character of Rocco 
Uh, he was relatable to me before I even realized he was relatable to me. And uh, yeah, y- Yuka definitely gives off massive Rocco energy in this. But, you know, you also get a sense of why they're friends beyond just kind of m- making up for the qualities they individually lack. Both also get each other going. Um, and you actually like understand like how they click when they start incessantly riffing on each other with like their dad joke puns. There's a, yeah, there's a very good sequence of them just trying to like outgrowner pun each other. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, it happens like a couple times. Like they, they get, they, they get off the, the train and then like a few pages later, they just get back on it again. And, uh, yeah, there's this great panel where they're, they're like, doing the dad puns and then they even just like annoy this eavesdropping fairy <laughs> yeah um like i it's another thing like i get why these contrasting personalities are friends yes yeah about 30 percent of the way into the book i was like okay i understand yuka and Laylee in a way that i think will in- just enrich the games themselves going forward. Like if I, when I go back into the original ukulele now, I'm going to be with these personalities. I, I get them in a way I didn't get them before. And that is probably the greatest contribution this graphic novel gives to the, the wider platonic franchise beyond just being an excellent piece of work itself. Um, but, um, you know, it, it is canon. Uh, it, it does play in that continuity. And I wanted to discuss a little bit of the, the continuity contributions of Ukulele and Cracklestone because there are a few things it does to kind of broaden our understanding of the, the corner of the world that Yuka and Lele inhabit. Um, you know, Shipwreck Creek and Hyvery Towers. So this establishes a bit more of the area around Shipwreck Creek, at least by referencing and name-checking some locations rather than actually showing. Um, but one thing that excited me, Cameron, I don't know if you caught this, when Yuka is setting out with the quills early that morning to go buy rocket boots, because they, they get these quills from this uh, hidden treasure trove in presumably uh, Tribal Stack Tropics, and I, I love the quills seem to be the universal currency in this corner of the world. Um, cause yeah, you, you use them, um, with trouser in, um, in the games, but it, it was never clear, like, is this, uh, an accepted form of currency? And it seems to be a, a universal form of currency, but, um, we know that the exit, like the way out of Shipwreck Creek is a, in the original ukulele, around those uh, red pipes near the cliff, we see Yuka venturing out towards, like, going through there. Um, and he gets held up going out. But, like, it seems to me like you could, um, if you just find the right tunnel or something, you, you would go out and get to explore the surrounding countryside and maybe a town. It's very exciting, the possibility um, but, but I was like, ah, so, so there, there is something beyond there. It's not just, um, Yuka and Lele in these mountains with this factory right next to them. There is more to this, uh, landscape, which I absolutely adore. Um, 
you, you'll need to update your map, Cameron. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that you can literally shop at B Mart, B E E hyphen Mart, which of course seems to be a play on Kmart or, you know, the, the, the superstar, superstore archetype, your, your Walmarts, your targets, um, which I guess B Mart would imply that it's, owned or partially owned or or founded by capital b yeah no ethical consumption (laughs) under capital b (laughs) well yes so at b mart laley wants to buy a b mart brand deluxe moisturizing foot bath which um i respect that As, as somebody who uh has a weird fascination with pampering himself and and like working out my sore tired muscles uh i respect the foot bath um <laughs> but the foot bath it, like that that is like Laylee's um rosebud throughout this like she keeps coming back to the foot bath she wants the foot bath and i have to be like i wanted her to have the foot bath cameron like <laughs> like <laughs> when, when, when yuka spent the quills um trouser to, to after uh, dr quack got the key to the basement to go to the Grand Tome to get the Crackle Stone. And, and then Yuka had to spend all of the Quill's trouser to get the second key. I was like, Laylee's foot bath. She's going to be so upset. <laughs> <laughs> I was invested in this foot bath. And, and spoilers, I was happy she got one at the end. We also get a little bit more backstory on how they moved into the Batship Crazy. Or rather, why they moved into the Batship Crazy. Honeybee Bank rejected their home loan request and so they just moved into this <laughs> derelict shipwreck in the mountains and those two things bmart and honeybee bank rejecting a home loan request may be the most american references in the book and therefore the most american references in the entirety of the ukulele franchise dm combo does a great job at keeping the britishisms uh uk you know spelling of words everything is intact and consistent throughout like i i don't think i spotted one um american uh spelling of a word that has a british variant or or uk variant um i could be wrong i could have overlooked something but i did catch a lot of the 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 uk spellings uh, a lot of extra u's in there um, which is good because that's what's used in ukulele. The characters do have this, you know, uh, English sensibility about them. But, but yeah, the, these are the most Ameri- bits of Americana that have slipped into ukulele. But I would argue it's completely justified given capital B and the American reality of constant li- constantly living in a corporate owned state. Because we may not like Jeff Bezos here in, in the U.S., but sometimes Amazon <laughs> Bez- Bezos. Bezos Bezos, I know. I said it. I meant it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes Amazon is the only option. And if you live in a small rural community, sometimes Walmart is all you got or else you live in a food desert. So you, sometimes we have to swallow um, our principles and, and make do. And, and you can lately, I mean, they are enemies with capital B, but they still shop at a superstore because where else are they going to shop? Um Layla's got to get her foot bath. So uh, I, I do appreciate that kind of 
nuanced bit of morality, right? Like, um, you can lay like the, they, they can't be proud here. They've, they've got to just go to B Mart and shop there because where else are they going to go? Capital B sort of has a, a monopoly, a stranglehold on this area. Right. So. And you get the impression they're, they're not really thinking about that for any of this. It, no. Hey, Capital B is just the guy who's a thorn in their side sometimes. <laughs> but I mean, can you imagine if like your arch nemesis was Sam Walton? You like got in a fist fight with him once and you live right next door to him as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm just saying like, I'm going to be side eyeing those Walmart greeters. Like, what are you up to old man? Don't put that sticker on me. What is it laced with poison? Get away from me. So ukulele, it, it does kind of flesh out a bit of the continuity. But what I wasn't expecting, Cameron, were DKU connections. Honest to go- honest to log DKU connections that go beyond just platonic. Now, obviously, this is stuff just like what platonic does that can only be alluded to. But it wasn't that subtle in some places. It's a uh, it, it's a it's a nudge. <laughs> you know, and yeah, yeah. Kind the, of. I'll I'll point it out when 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 I get to it. But there was one thing in particular that I think I I actually fell out of my seat when I saw it. I was like, "Oh my god, he did it! He did! He put it in there!" Um. So yeah, I and just just for the record, like I would have been perfectly fine if it was just ukulele characters, right? Because I mean, we consider them DKU, no. you know, th- they're grandfathered in, and like I didn't need anything else in here. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, w- when we were pestering Platonic to put a goldfish in the game, uh, which w- mission mission accomplished, by the way. Yeah, we we learned from our interview with uh, DM Combo that he had to keep trying to remember to put the goldfish in Doctor Puzz's tank in in the drawings of her in this. Yeah, uh, but you and know that that's really enough. Yeah, yeah, but and and now you can <laughs> make someone's enough. life harder. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting actual nods to the greater DKU. So a not so subtle undercurrent seems to be, and this is just my impression. That in addition to Yuka and Lele and Dr. Quack and potentially and Dr. Puzz and, and, uh, Rextro and, and Nimbo and Nimble and, and, and Kartos getting roped into this adventure, Trouser may have also sold a key to the Hyrie Towers basement to a character that's not named, but is definitely alluded to. Banjo and quite possibly Kazooie with him may be having an adventure off panel at the same time in this grand tome. You really get the impression that they're like, like you have just missed Banjo and Kazooie. (laughs) Right. So there are three references that would indicate he's on, uh, he he and Mamie Kazooie are on their own adventure uh, trying to get the Crackle Stone with their own trappings, uh, the, the things that would entail a Banjo-Kazooie adventure. Because, okay, when when they encounter the Planker sign, um, by the way, the Planker sign, in, in another great bit of continuity, which I don't know how DM Combo made work, or if these were Andy Robinson's suggestions, or if 
Uh, they were incorporated after the game came out. Um, I imagine there's a lot of back and forth rewriting the dialogue that, w- that went into this, which we'll have to ask DM Combo at some point. But the, the planker sign, just like all the planker signs in ukulele, misunderstands what ukulele's role is. In this case, thinking they're the landscapers, um, which, which is, I just loved that running gag continues into this. But the planker sign says, when describing the area, honey tumble hives, and I quote, saw a honey bear over there. He kept pocketing random junk he found on the ground. Totally deranged. Sounds like a Trump tweet. Totally deranged. Um, Yuka replies, poor guy. So, honey bear. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously an explicit reference. I said it, it's, it's subtle, but that's, that's kind of like, uh, I mean, anybody who knows what the, the historical lineage of. Yeah. It, the, it's just a matter are. of you wouldn't bring it up if it wasn't a nod. Right. Um, notably, Honey Tumble Hives is one of the few areas of the Grand Tome that Yuka and Lely never enter or explore. They see it from a distance. And that's it. Um, so I, I love that potentially Banjo and Kazooie are here at the same time, also trying to get the crackle stone. Like Trouser cast a wide net, uh, with this scam, right? Uh, which, which, which makes me love, like, I like the character of Trouser before, because Trouser is one of the few, uh, quote unquote, XPs in Banjo and Kazooie that were, or excuse me, in Ukulele that was totally removed from banjo kazooie because you got he's basically bottles the mole right but he's so unlike bottles in every single way like it's kind of the opposite dynamic from bottles in that like trouser holds all the power here like not just in terms of like gameplay gating but just like the whole conceit with bottles it is that he was kind of a an easy target for all of Kazooie's insults. Trouser, and I like how this um, story kind of, as you said, because like Banjo and all these other characters are kind of implicitly roped into this scheme of his, like he's just kind of the, the omni snake oil salesman for literal snake oil salesman um, for <laughs> every pla- three platforming character. Cause he just, knows the 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 market to scam right and and so it's implied by the planker sign that banjo is picking up stuff your mind goes to jiggies right um and so like did the trouser like also put jiggies into this grand tome to like ensnare banjo and to make it like this side of of the grand tome will be a banjo kazooie adventure um well the answer is yes, <laughs> because eventually at one point in the story, after Yuka and Lele are separated, Yuka encounters the, the cloud characters Nimbo and Nimble, and Yuka needs to get, uh, without getting too much into the minutia of the story, Yuka needs to get a Molly Cool to Dr. Puzz so Dr. Puzz can power her invention to get Yuka to mount Zapcrackle uh, without Lele, because Lele's been captured at this point. So y- Yuka's like, hey, have you seen a Molly Cool? And Nimbo's like, yeah, I think I have saw one. And then he vomits up 
a, a whole horde of items that uh, includes the molecule, but there are other items in the sick. <laughs> this is the point where I, I fell out of my chair. Uh, I, I was on the couch reading this and I like my butt leapt off the cushion and I hit the floor. I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've got to tell somebody I've got to tell. No, I can't spoil this. I can't spoil this. <laughs> um, so th- these are three items that have great significance and um the f- the first one is a jiggy unmistakably a jiggy it, it it is um clear as day the shape is right it's a jiggy uh and and so it's like yeah yeah there are jiggies in this grand tome and nimbo ate one <laughs> Yeah, that happens to that happens to Jiggies an awful lot. Uh, There's also a pair of blue underpants, which are similar to to the ones um, Yuka and Lily have. Um, So, so I think that's just more of a reference to the Batship Crazy and and the underpants. But you could also infer, uh, as we did with those underpants and Yuka and Lily, that they are Mister Pants brand underpants underwear. Pants, because um, they're the wi- they're they're wide fronts. I mean, they're 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 not red, but we've seen uh, in ukulele that they have the pants catalog that has a whole variety of colors. And in its Mister Pants, there are a wide variety of pants colors as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's a Mister Pants reference, even if that was not the intention. I think it's. Yeah, I think it's, um, especially considering the pairing of items that it's with, if you want to read that into it, it's not too big a leap. Um, yeah, well, well, it's the third sp- one. Speaking it's of the-, the third item, yeah, th- the- this is the one that blew my kind that took me the most by surprise yeah weirdly you would think the jiggy would be the bigger deal for me uh, no because it's this one that just pushed it over the line into are you kidding me <laughs> uh do you want do you want to say what it is cameron uh ant- anti-gravity chocolate from <laughs> conquer and- okay yeah it's not it's not just a piece of chocolate it is floating chocolate <laughs> it it it's one of those things like like similar to TT showing up in the the alpha build of Sea of Thieves where it's more striking because it's not the reference you expect like like when I hear that oh this this book has DKU nods in it I think well ban- okay the the one the go to is Banjo Kazooie obviously because that's the pedigree. Yeah, I did not expect a nod to conquer in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, the, the easier one would be to have like a banana in there, right? Because it's like, aha, uh, Donkey Kong, but you know, bananas, you know, whatever. Anti gravity chocolate is such an esoteric niche specific reference <laughs> that that you wouldn't expect to see it in, in something like this. Not that I expected to see a jiggy, but. Uh, so, so that might also imply, and, and Conquer is never referenced anywhere else in this. There, there's nothing about like, oh, saw a squirrel running around. He looked pretty fucking miserable. Um, <laughs> but it implies to me that Trouser baited this for Conquer as well, right? If there's anti-gravity chocolate in here, uh, he had very least tried to sell this key to Conquer. 
who probably couldn't be asked. You know, yeah, I, I think Conker would wonder if if there is money in it for him. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't to let go of his money. I don't know if you could uh, out con Conker. Con is in his name, right? <laughs> so, um, but it, that that is just like. I know DM Combo is a fan, right? I know he's listened to the conversation. Uh, he, he said as much, uh, in our interview with him, like he, he's listened to the conversation even when drawing. So it's not surprising, it, or at least it shouldn't be surprising that these references made it in, but it's surprising all the same. And it's appreciated too. Cause you know, a jiggy, you can't copyright a puzzle piece. Uh, you can't copyright a piece of chocolate. Um, so, so the references that you can play with, you know, you can't just say that is a jiggy from off of Banjo Kazooie. They're very safe references to make, but also they're so overtly specific that there is no room for interpretation. Like if you put a floating like square of chocolate in your comic book, there's not really any other conclusions for me to draw for me to draw. Especially when it's next to a golden puzzle piece and a pair of Y front underwear. Yeah. You know, and and again, that's this kind of thing that I didn't need. I wasn't looking for, but the fact that they're in there, I'm never going to shut up about it. <laughs> like this is the kind of thing that makes me proud to be a comic book guy, right? Like to, that want makes me want to wear my nerdiness on my sleeve, my 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 geeky interest, because I feel like. I am being appreciated here. I feel like people like me are being appreciated reading this. I don't feel like I like I'm being punched down at for liking this stuff. I feel like um my interests are being celebrated because they are the author's interests. And I think, you know, for as fraught as these times we live in are, that is one area that is dramatically better than it used to be. Um, the, the way the entertainment industry works now, there is something for everybody and nothing is being gatekeeped by, um, elite Harvard writers who work on the Simpsons staff. You know, it's, it, 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 it is, um, it, it, it is something that I was beaming about for several pages afterwards and I'm beaming about right now. Um, so it just it's just one panel, actually two panels because you kind of see the jiggy and then you get a closer look and then you see the other stuff in there. But um and ultimately it doesn't really matter to the story and the story and the characterization and the art. They're what matters here. But it just this one little panel made me feel like, yeah, he gets me. A panel of <laughs> let me reiterate vomit. <laughs> But again, the fact that it is all just coded in Nimbo Sick makes it all the more special to me. <laughs> then Dr. Puzz shows up near the end of the story. She shows back up near the end of the story. She's got a weapon called the Puzzler, and you're like, oh, okay, that because she's Dr. Puzz. But it's also, it, it, it's, a, it's a twofer, because it's the Puzzler, but it fires ammunition that that are clearly just broken up jiggy pieces. Um so she's she's presumably gathered some of the jiggies um that she found in this grand tome and now she's using it as bullets in her in her uh her makeshift gun. Uh just another comment on the the expressions on like like gleefully mischievous Dr. Puzz in the frames where she's using that gun like 
DM Combo did such a really spectacularly spectacular job of making of making Doctor Puzz so much fun in this book. Not just Doctor Puzz in that panel. Uh, Dr. Puzz's unnamed goldfish that DM Combo had to remember to draw. Uh, <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, I'm just going to call him Royston for the purposes of us uh, and our audience. Royston it's is a deli- common name. It, look, I, 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 I know several Roystons, at least two. Um, <laughs> Royston is delightfully expressive in this because um, he's usually in, in most panels, he's cowering behind dr puzz's head like he's got a very meek kind of like like which would make sense if it was royston because like please don't hurt me please don't hurt me actually oh my god cameron if royston knows banjo is in this grand tome of course he would be hiding behind he tried to eat me last time <laughs> oh my god you can't you can't let him take me back for the fifth time i can't go back to that like i'm happy with you dr puzz um yeah royston's usually like hiding but uh at the panel where dr puzz is firing the puzzler royston has this like um expression where you actually see him getting fired up in the thick of the action too like he's like yeah come on let's get him uh, which I appreciated because I, I was looking at Royston in every single panel he appeared in. Um, and, and that was the panel where he really like stopped being meek and he was like, all right, let's do this. Um, I'm a man of action. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's also like just to go back to like story and characters. Um, like the, the dynamic between Dr. Puzz and Dr. Quack where, like one was sort of was sort of betrayed by the other is sort of it's mostly confined to like backstory in the original ukulele. You see it more play out a little bit here with um, yeah. like the the invention she wanted the Molly cool for was for the puzz copter. And when you can lately point out, oh, Dr. Quack has something like that called the quack copter. She kind of goes ballistic because yeah. he's ripped her off yet again. And then when Dr. Quack is like running diagnostics on his uh failing Quack Copter, it it even reads out as Puzz Copter like he's even stolen the basic software behind it. Yeah, he's he's incredibly insecure about his inventions being definitely original do not steal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I also wanted to touch on I know we're kind of going way out of order again, but just because I'm thinking about this arc of like when she gets the the puzzler, um, uh, Cartos is also in this story. Yeah, and I enjoy him so much more as a character than I did in the original ukulele. I enjoy the way he's him portrayed here. I enjoy him so much more as a character when I don't have to play his segments. Um, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> there's that angle to it, and I think for some people that's also the case with Rextro. Like I have. I've always been like of the opinion that like Rextro as a character is so lovable that even when like his gameplay segments were awkward to play in the original ukulele, it's not enough to make me dislike the character himself because he is so like genuine and sincere and like wonderfully oblivious to the world around him. Yeah. Um, Kartos had the, the problem for me in the first game of, we touched on before, he was kind of a 
like things were like complaining that minecart levels had disappeared from games after like two Donkey Kong countries had just come out after Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it kind of colored his characterization for me like, oh, this guy is just it made him kind of come off like whiny to me in a way that's not as fun as when Cranky Kong is whiny because I'm just saying, well, no, the, your thing is still going on. Um, this, this book kind of takes a, a swerve with Kartos's character in a way that I think is a lot more endearing in that he's, he's framed as more of a doddering old, old man, like a grandpa Simpson type. It's characterization that works with his portrayal in ukulele, even if it does take a detour from it, but it, like, I think this should be the def- definitive roadmap for how to handle Kartas going forward, uh, whenever he pe- appears in future games, because it was like, yeah, that this, like, he's kind of cracked this, uh, this complicated shell of this character. Like, how can you make this character work when he didn't really work for a lot of fans in the, the first game? Uh, I, I think he's nailed it. And I, I do wonder, like, too, like, cause Kartas was one of the early characters revealed. Um, the, the Dr. Puzz, uh, Dr. Quack rivalry was one of the first story elements that was really shown off, uh, in spring of 2016. And, um, so I clearly it's, it's DM Combo was utilizing a lot of that early material for this when he was breaking down the, the Cracklestone graphic novel and, um, but he, he did it in a way that like, it, again, it doesn't feel like this is just early beta ukulele material. Like it's like, well, that relationship between Quack and Puzz wasn't really fleshed out in the first game. It was all conjectural backstory. Uh, here we actually get to see it in action and it feels like, ah, finally, finally we see it. Uh, Kartos, um, you know, his character, it was just kind of a, a confused mess in the original ukulele. Uh, but you just tweak it a little bit and, oh, he's a, he's a fun character now. And, and that, that's what this does so well. Like, you know, I said like, ukulele and the impossible layer made me a bigger fan of the entire platonic, uh, corner of the world. Uh, ukulele and the crackle stone really just makes me almost fanatical about these characters. Um, it did when I read it, but rereading it now, I just realized how much I actually loved it and, um, how much it makes the characters all feel just so endearing to me. What, what, what are your final thoughts, Cameron, on Ukulele and the Crackles? I'll give you your, uh, your platform first before I give mine. I genuinely don't know what else to say other than if you have not read this, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, this, this first, this um, book is a work of art in every sense of the word. Um, the, the story is a whole lot of fun. It is, it is gorgeous doing it. Um, and I think it, I think it might be one of the like most gorgeous books I've ever seen. And I don't necessarily mean that in terms of, of the, the interior art or the cover. I mean, the entire package. Yeah. Um, I would say like, um, 
like this is going a little bit off the beaten path of the point, but the physical version of this book is so incredibly well considered um, as like a a beautiful cohesive piece. Um, but uh, yeah, it it fleshes out the the characters of the ukulele world in a big way that like feels key to defining who they are for me for everything going forward. It's a fantastic lens to view this char- these characters in world four that's very different from the games, but never feels out of step. DM Combo was absolutely the right person to have been given the authority over these characters for this. Um, his sensibilities blend so well with um, those of Platonic. Um, just... It, it it seems like the tritest thing to say like this this perfectly captures the experience of playing a ukulele game in a in a comic but really it kind of captures an experience that you can't get in a ukulele game by nature of what the medium is and it is such a worthwhile look at these characters in this world yeah it was exactly what it needed to be and as someone who is already a fan of ukulele and platonic and obviously a hyper fan of the dku you know finally my shared universe finally my urkel verse uh it, it felt wonderful to have something this high quality made for us and like you said not just the quality uh of the contents of the artwork of the story which, which is all superlative right but the the graphic novel itself uh, the, the physical edition is, is beautiful. I, I've currently got the backer edition, but I have ordered the Grand Tome edition too. Um, because in my entire, you know, comic book, graphic novel reading experience, in the course of that as a kind of secondary side hobby, I've never held anything like this. I mean, the pages are heavyweight, um, sturdy pages, luxurious binding. It was like a spa day for my eyes and fingers. It was like Lely's foot bath, but for my, <laughs> for my senses, you know, and, and you know, granted, granted, this is what Kickstarter affords you, but I am just beyond tickled that we have something this bespoke for us. Um, because I've had $150 editions, like the absolute editions of some famous, like, DC Comics stories. Um, you know, very, very expensive, large books, but they're printed on what's essentially one rung above newsprint. Just, just ultimately very expensive, but very cheap. And this ukulele graphic novel is packaged like a sacred text, like you would see in the Library of Alexandria. It, 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 it is something so beyond what I'm used to, especially for my deepest passion, which is the DKU. Having something like this for us, it, it's unfathomable, you know? Um, and... So I, I definitely recommend checking out the Grand Tome Edition. Get a copy while you still can. But what I, you know, I didn't realize this until I was deep into my reread 
of of this for this episode was how it effort, effortlessly did pull together all of those divergent threads of my childhood. It took me back to my days in Nickelodeon. It validated and celebrated my hyper-focus on continuity, characterization, and other geeky things. And it did so written by someone who clearly loves the DKU and this era of gaming as much as we do. Which is all well and good, but, you know, we, we still have some questions. There are things we have unanswered, and... I think we need to take them back to the man himself. So on the next episode of The Conversation, this time the DM will be sliding into us. This has been a File 2 production. Que rico.